I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about The Silence of the Lambs, and I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, writer Trisha Avrahan. Good afternoon. Writer Brian Bittner. Good morning. And editor Alex Cayeros. Hi. Say good evening. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Brian. You were the one that suggested we do The Silence of the Lambs. Why did you want to talk about The Silence of the Lambs? Oh, you're going you're gonna to make me go on this ride again, huh? Yep. Uh, <laughs> it all started... G- gather up your uh, your carpet squares and your juice boxes, kids. It's story time. <laughs> uh, it all started uh, like way back when I was working on the Collateral video, and I was reading John York's Into the Woods, and he talked about how scenes have the same structure as an act or as an entire movie. And I thought, huh, it seems obvious, but I had never really thought about it before. And I thought, oh, it'd be cool to do a video on the structure of a scene. Just take one scene, that's what the entire video is about, and look at the structure. And that kind of stuck in my head uh, for months, and I had made lists of what are the most iconic scenes, you know, Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, Silence of the Lambs, etc. Silence of the Lambs kept sort of sticking in my mind, and when we finally started talking about it, I thought, well, I don't know if we could do an entire video about one scene. That seems silly, like, unless it's in Glorious Bastards, where the scene is 20 minutes long. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, so then I had the idea to take three scenes from Silence of the Lambs, all between Clarice and Hannibal, and talk one scene, talk about what a scene should do, and then another talk about the structure of a scene, and then talk about how scenes fit together to make kind of the bigger picture. And that's where we went for a while. And that's kind of what it was until like a week before the video. (laughs) And Michael's like, what if we just made it all about one scene? So it was funny because it was a very, is a big process with a lot of a lot of changes and stuff, but I thought it was cool that it ended up being kind of what I had originally originally envisioned, which was to do a video about just one scene and sort of cover all the like major talking points about what is what a great scene contains in that one thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an interesting case where like the the videos as pulling back the curtain a little bit. I feel like the videos change a lot while we're working on them sometimes, and Definitely. this is one <laughs> that uh, that changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And sorry for that. <laughs> Uh, but I think it, it is interesting that, you know, part of, I think, what makes the videos work is when they can just be really simple and clear. Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually very hard to get something to be really simple mm-hmm. and clear. Right. Uh, I think people underestimate how much work goes into that. And right. so yeah. that right. plus the like time constraints of it was like, OK, I think to get across the most important things that's at the heart of this, I think it's best to just like trim it and keep it really focused on this one scene yeah which then works out that it was the original version vision of it also and it's something i found uh, with a couple of our first drafts is i'll just throw a bunch of ideas on the page and then you know it's some that i'm like there's no way this is gonna make it into the video but still i'm gonna include it in this draft just in case it sparks anything or just so it's there and uh and then it's sort of (laughs) your you, as as the uh, the fearless leader, you're the one who then takes it and says, "Okay, well, let's turn this into something slick." And I think that's what you know. That's what's the nice to see the the process. And I think there's a lot of pressure to. This is one of the funny parts about being a part of the channel, but also focusing specifically on screenplay and some of these standards to which we hold ourselves. I think one of the most difficult things is that when there's a really amazing movie that we all love so much, there's a lot of pressure on it where we want to say exactly the right thing about it or exactly the most useful thing about it. And and we want to say everything about it. Well, we also want to say yeah. everything about it. But in the video, we do. We want to like save the movie for the perfect lesson. And so, yeah, th- there's this sense of like, we only get one shot at this movie, right? Finding the lesson in it. 
And that does create a lot of pressure. And so I know that probably that's something, at least I was feeling that when we were having a conversation about the video where it was like, I don't want to just do this one scene. I mean, it's a good lesson and it's useful and everything, but there's so many more opportunities to say something about this amazing film. And it just sometimes simplicity is best. We should start a podcast. We can talk about all that. (laughs) What a good idea. It always strikes me how um, surprisingly similar the emotional creative journey seems to be for (laughs) LFTS as, you know, working on scripted material. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is scripted, I guess, in in a way it's, it's video essays, but there's still this, the same emotional process of being kind of attached to early versions of a thing Mm because that's what got you excited. But then having to realize that it's going in the wrong direction and then going a totally different direction. That one didn't work either. That got even worse somehow. And mm-hmm. now going back to how it was in the beginning, but now better because you've learned from going in all the wrong directions. Right. It's just, yeah, the writing process never ceases to amaze me at how it's just a lot of dead ends and a lot of like emotional anguish to arrive back at kind of what you started with, but now you've learned from the journey. Yeah. <laughs> Seems to be yeah. the process. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure every video at some point, there's a moment where I'm like, this is never going to work. Yeah. Uh, let's throw it out. What can we put together really quick? What if we did Mean Girls or something like, <laughs> yeah. let's look into what we talked yeah. about before. It's like um, a dark night of the soul where it's just, right. yeah. And then you push through. Well, and what's interesting about the Silence of the Lambs and part of the challenge that I was running into when I was trying to kind of adapt what you were saying of doing each, you know, following multiple scenes and talking about um, different aspects of each scene is like, I always want to try to find a nice progression in the videos Mm. where like section two builds on section one, section Mm -hmm. three builds on section two. And I feel like the topics we were trying to discuss didn't map out to the the, like flow of the scenes between Clarice and uh lector because they're they're all very similar in many ways but they're also structurally different and Mm -hmm. things and and we can kind of get into that um but that's kind of one of the other challenges is sometimes the movie doesn't cooperate and you want it to be yeah movie if you would just change these two scenes (laughs) it would have made a much better video essay (laughs) right right. yeah yeah like the thinking of the kind of dry academic lesson we're trying to teach is not like being perfectly exemplified by this <laughs> scene. Like, why didn't you make it perfect for LTS, Jonathan Denny? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. I do think it was interesting because, you know, I didn't write this video and you guys were working on it. I probably personally would not have chosen the third scene between them. I I was like in favor of choosing the fourth scene between them because it is like sort of the most iconic and builds to like the most recognizable climax where she's telling that monologue. Um, and obviously Jodie Foster's performance is amazing in that moment. And so you, you want to honor and, and acknowledge that scene. But I do think that it worked really well because the bones of of the structure, I think we're a little more visible in that third scene. So I'm actually curious, Michael, how did you zero in on that one out of those four conversations? Yeah, well, I think even in Brian's first draft, that was the scene that you were using as the structural example was the third scene. Right. So it was already kind of picked apart. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and I did look at the other ones. And the fourth scene is, I think, yeah, the most cathartic. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's the most fun scene between them because you get, like, you know, she finishes the story of, like, the lambs and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But because of uh, things that you also pointed out, Brian, in your draft, like, it doesn't have the same um, kind of resolution. It's not the complete structure all in, you know, within the boundaries of when they enter this location and Mm -hmm. leave this location. And that's something that I think would be really interesting to talk about too. Like, you know, one of the things that I like in John York's book, he he talks about in the structure of scenes, 
uh, a lot of times the inciting incident and like the resolution or climax isn't part of the actual scene mm. right because it's part of a flow that's happening and i think right. Uh, especially the second scene between Clarice and Dr. Lecter after she's gone to uh, storage this, locker. Yeah, yeah. storage locker. Found, found the severed head. Right. Yeah. His name was Benjamin Raspail. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's a that was that's a really good example of scene that doesn't have an inciting incident because it's just like you know, right. it, it's off the heels of this discovery, and so we already know what the scene is about and what her goal is. And it kind of ends as a cliffhanger where it's like at the crisis point of like, I'll help you like catch him, Clarice. Like, what are you going to do? What's your mm-hmm. choice going to be? And it cuts away to something else. And so I think that's that's a really good example of the kind of other kind of scene that can exist in movies that creates this momentum where you're kind of coming in late because the audience already knows what the topic is. Right. You're just diving into the conflict and then jumping out right at the like what's she gonna do moment right. to like keep people invested it was something i talked about in my first draft i talked about setups and payoffs which was yeah. that third uh, that final scene between them ends with her not getting the information because chilton breaks in and he says oh you know take your um your case files and then she realizes later that mm-hmm. he had written a note that is gonna so it's a weird it's weird to talk about that scene in and of itself where mm-hmm. it's in, it's a good scene to talk about in the broader sense of how scenes cut together because it's setting up something that is paid off later and it itself is paying off the end of the mo- lamb story, which was set up earlier. But the, I think the third scene between them does have, it's a little bit more complete in, in what mm-hmm. it does. One thing I realized during the writing of this video, cause I was kind of hanging out at Michael's house during some of the dark night of the soul <laughs> moments um, was I was going a little crazy too. Cause I was trying to give him some feedback and like bounce ideas off of him. And I'm like, well, but like, does a scene have to have all these things? Like maybe it's bad if a scene actually has like a beginning, middle and mm-hmm. end. It's like not, you know, it's too much for just one scene and it's part of a sequence. And what if you're cutting back and forth between different scenes that are doing different things? And yeah, it's like, it, we want this all to be perfect so we can teach a lesson about it, but maybe this doesn't exist. So I think there's something challenging sometimes with, trying to nail down these screenwriting fundamentals because they are there right. like you you do need to have desire and conflict and obstacles and all these elements of a scene for it to have any energy in life and to work and be storytelling but it's it's hard to find these perfect examples of them because movies aren't actually that way where they're just yeah. ev- every scene is this exact you know schematic you can just point to well, and one thing, yeah. especially that third scene does really well, is that it actually represents a shift in the character's desires. Because once Catherine Martin is kidnapped, it it is the main twist that totally sends the movie in a different direction. Because there were not, there was not the urgency, there were not the stakes up until that point. Mm-hmm. You know, Clarice essentially still believes that she's just there to like do get him to do a questionnaire more or less mm-hmm. um you know because that's what she's been told by Crawford but once Catherine Martin is kidnapped there's those really tangible stakes and the desires become really clarified and focused in that third scene where it's like we have to save her so that gives him leverage right to like try to negotiate for what he wants which is his freedom essentially and it gives her real motivation that we can, like, understand. Now, you do get the sense that the entire time in the first two scenes, Clarice kind of knows that, obviously, she knows that she's there for a reason. But her internal desire isn't clarified to herself as to what it is that she's there for. And so that third scene really does sharpen all of those motivations in a way that I think is really helpful 
in order to break down the structure of like, okay, so then then what are the obstacles? Then what are the ways in which we're negotiating to get what we want? Because mm-hmm. our desires are at odds, but they're still very surface level accessible to the audience at that point. It's something I hadn't thought about before. Her desire at the beginning is she's just like in the whole first act for the most part is she's just doing her job. And Mm. then it's, oh, we need to save this person. You know, there's someone who like could die. We need to go save them. And then by the end, it's, oh, her desire is to find inner peace. Like you, when you hear about the lambs and everything. So it's our, the protagonist that we're following her, her, the stakes become higher each time, right. I think, mm-hmm. for her, because and we as the audience go, oh, it's not just she needs to save somebody. It's she is struggling with this thing right. and she needs to to quell, basically. Even though we don't necessarily you're saying like her desire is to do a job. Yes, of course it is. But we understand something else about her that's very critical from the very opening frame, because when we're introduced to her, she's running by herself in the woods. She's at this training field. She's putting herself through these exercises. There's not a drill sergeant there that's screaming at her. There's not a lot of peer pressure or anybody else around her. She is on her own and she is pushing herself. And that is a kind of character with the instantly recognized as being internally motivated and internally driven. Sure. And so like actually one of the most brilliant things about Clarice as a character is she's incredibly simple. She's internally driven toward getting the bad guy, essentially, which is a sort of a trope we see in detective characters and, and you know, sort of crime solvers, generally speaking. But it is so clearly defined from the very minute that we meet Clarice. And then, you know, we can get into it, but there's obviously pressures on her from other places, Crawford and stuff like that. We understand that Clarice is doing this because Clarice has to do this on her own. And so even before Catherine Martin gets kidnapped, those two opening scenes, while they're not as clear, they're still incredibly compelling because we already do understand that base level foundation of who Clarice is. Well, I think it's also it's not just that she wants to get the bad guy. It's that she's really fascinated with the psychology of Mm -hmm. of criminals and psychopaths like it's very clear in that first scene she, she that it was a behavioral something behavioral Unit, class yeah. with from crawford and she you know she remembers her grade from the class and she mm-hmm. wanted to you know be be him one day basically so you can tell she's internally also just fascinated with this subject matter and so and i love jodie foster's performance in yeah. these scenes with hannibal Lecter because there's that fear and there's the kind of disgust at certain moments but there's also this fascination and when she when she leans in and she's kind of onto a clue or onto understanding something you can just see how excited she is. And it, that's that makes her a great character because you like seeing a character love their work that much. It's it's always an appealing thing. Yeah. And I will, um, I mean, we don't necessarily have to get a ton into the behind the scenes, although we can. But originally when they built that cell set, it was all like, like metal and bars and, and wires and everything between her. And Jonathan Demi was like, no, 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 this not only visually does this not work, but for character reasons, this does not work. We have to let them be able to look each other in the eyes. Um, and of course, in the case of the camera, like the direction, look us, the audience, Directly dead in the, the eyes. Yeah. Oh yeah, we can talk about this. Horrifying, yeah. yeah. But it was the production designer then that was like, plexiglass is the answer. And so they put this thick plexiglass there and then drilled those holes in it. Well, first they put the plexiglass and then, and then everyone was happy except other, for the yeah. sound designer was like, we can't hear anything. It's like, let's just drill some holes in it. Yeah. But it also, it, it's such a brilliant move because it enables these characters to move towards each other and to see and understand each other in a way that becomes 
absolutely essential to the plot. Mm-hmm. So, and one choice that uh, that Jonathan Demi made was with the bars. They said, "Well, if you don't want to shoot actors through the bars, then why don't you just put the camera in the cell with Lecter?" Mm-hmm. And and to his yeah. credit, he said, "Then he's not dangerous. He's yeah. not dangerous if we're just hanging out with him. He's dangerous when he's on the other side of this this mm-hmm. barrier." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Well, and yeah, just so much of the the setup of. Lecter helps create that danger also like watching it again I was struck by how much time is spent building up him and like how many people warn her like Mm -hmm. don't like don't touch the bars don't like talk to him blah 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 and the build up of walking down and through the whole you know corridor with all the terrifying Mm -hmm. people yeah Um, oh god that that moment where that moment where Chilton shows her a picture of the nurse that apparently and you don't don't see the picture you don't see the picture which is horrifying but also I do call BS on that a little bit because what, Chilton, are you carrying it with you at all times? (laughs) That was a weird moment of like, he just has it in his back pocket when he needs to. It's in his like breast pocket. He's like, here it is. It's this little photograph of this horrifying thing that happened. Chilton seems like someone who would do that. He's a pretty creepy guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking about the simplicity of Clarice's character, in all honesty, there's a good degree to which Hannibal Lecter is also pretty simple. He is very understandable in the sense that his desire is highly sympathetic and understandable. He wants a view of the sky. He's trapped in a cell. He seems like he's made his peace with that fact. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, like we know he wants escape. And that's a very simple, understandable, highly relatable desire. Sure, but that's his character as it exists within the plot of the movie. That's not saying the character of Hannibal Lecter is simple because it's really complicated. (laughs) Well, sure. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I feel like as far as like the scenes go and... and, and What his desire is. Yeah, exactly. And and I think in the third scene, sort of like you were saying, Trisha, I I feel like it does get amped up because, you know, now there's a ticking clock where Mm -hmm. this woman has been kidnapped. Um, but I feel I, I was also struck by how it's such a good example of how the characters, yeah, desires are in direct conflict, yes. but that they also absolutely need the other one to achieve their desire. Like mm-hmm. I feel like it's it's such a strong example of that where like literally they cannot neither one can achieve what they want without the other one. And the other one does not want to give it to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a great setup for that that drama. And also thinking about what you were just saying, Trish, of, you know, that uh, Jodie Foster's character is so internally motivated from mm-hmm. the beginning. Uh, that kind of made me realize that's, I think, why the Lamb story is so fascinating. Mm. It's because it's, you do want to know, like, what what's in there? Like, why 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 is she so driven? Like, what mm-hmm. is her backstory? And I think that's kind of what also makes you kind of empathetic toward Lecter in some moments, that he's able to, like see that and is also curious about it in the way that I feel like the audience is? Well, it's therapy. I mean... Right. It's true. You know, how could... He was a therapist. How could you resist if you have a serial killer that is a therapist? How could you possibly resist putting an FBI agent on the couch across from him and forcing her to have a therapy session with Hannibal Lecter over the course of these four conversations. But ultimately, that's what it is. It's kind I, of thought, a- I thought it was weird when they hug at the end and he says, it's not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't buy that. Bit of a stretch. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, it's kind of the promise of the premise. You you have to do that. If, exactly. If, if the serial killer is going to be a psychologist, you have to. And I, I was thinking watching this movie, like, wow, how many films send Sounds of the Lambs Mm. put the bad guy in a box and have him try to be this like Hannibal Lecter-ish like 
charming and smart but diabolical and like having this but this is like the original one and it's so good i just watching it again i remember when i saw it back when i was in high school um and i didn't i was like this one best picture and like it's a horror (laughs) thriller like what this isn't like an academy award movie Mm. but watching it again it's like no this is this this was a director that took a genre movie and i think the acting and the cinematography and the editing everything about it just elevates it to more than just a simple yeah procedural genre crime genre the silence of the lambs is of course based on a book and as we'll soon go on to talk about there are some intriguing differences between the book and the film among other things in the book the story is told from a more omniscient point of view whereas in the film the focus is on clarice as the protagonist the book also dives more into each of the characters giving the reader more details about the backstories of all the main players. If you're interested in checking out the book, I recommend listening to the audiobook on Audible. With Audible, you get access to an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, like The Silence of the Lambs and the other Hannibal Lecter stories, memoirs, and more. Audible members can choose three titles every month, one audiobook, and two Audible originals you can't hear anywhere else. And you can listen on any device, anytime, anywhere. And you can start a 30-day trial today and get your first audiobook for free by going to audible.com screenplay or by texting screenplay to 500-500. Once again, head to audible.com screenplay or text screenplay to 500-500 to start a 30-day trial and to let them know you came from our show. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring this episode of Beyond the Screenplay. And the studio really had no faith in it. They uh, yeah. they eventually pushed it back when Dances with Wolves. Orion was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, we got Dances with Wolves. Forget about this other like weird movie." And they pushed it to February instead of Oscar season, so it came out on Valentine's Day, nineteen ninety one. Well, Jonathan Demme and... thought it would be a great date movie, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, uh, True story. Yeah, wow. but, then, but then just be, the word of mouth was so strong mm-hmm. on it, and everything that by you know it's one of the only three movies ever to win the the big five uh, uh, Oscars and. Um, but that's pretty incre- impressive. They put it out nowhere close to Oscar season, and it had that much staying power until the end of the year that people were still thinking about it. And that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are so many, which, first of all, I'm so thankful for that, because if it had had to go up against Dances with Wolves at the Oscars, mm. it would have gone really differently, probably. And also keep in mind, so then by pushing it into 1991, although it was released very early in the year, it ended up being like in the same time frame as like Thelma and Louise and some other movies like so Jodie Foster was actually up against both Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis mm. oh, in wow. the best actress category both of them were nominated for Thelma and Louise wow. and Jodie Foster was nominated with them and a couple obviously a couple other women um, but like what an amazing year for female roles uh, these amazing just so well realized courageous uh, highly relatable highly intelligent women but i'm really glad like it was a it turned out to be a smart move on orion's part that we all ended up sort of reaping the benefit of because it allowed it allowed the film to be judged on its own merits um instead of pitting it unnecessarily against things obviously we just came out of oscar season so that's kind yeah, of raw on our minds. i think for all of us right now <laughs> very interesting oscar season <laughs> oh it really was wasn't it guys oh boy we don't have to talk about that yeah. <laughs> in any way well it kind of reminds me also of 
seven when I was watching it mm. of, of sort of like you were saying, Alex, like a genre movie that somehow became like a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, and just I was also struck by how many, yeah, how many movies have copied it, like how this created like a new uh not cliche but like an archetypal mm. situation of like you need the bad person to achieve the goal and um yeah and i was just thinking a lot about seven and just there's an interesting era of the 90s that i feel like maybe I, yeah. I wasn't even like conscious of until recently where there there were these like new ground was being like treaded that that i don't think i was really aware of at the time but sure. like well, we were all young. Right. Well, yeah, sure. I never would have been allowed to see this as a child. No, no. Well, there were sort of two. The 90s were lots of thrillers. Like late mm-hmm. 80s, mm-hmm. second half of the 80s, especially early half of the 90s, there was this incredible rise in thrillers. So you have sort of like psychological thrillers, which I think Silence of the Lambs is a pretty amazing example of. And then you have the erotic thrillers, which were also being made, like Fatal Attraction, Um Remember, and, I love what lies beneath. Yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer. Also, a really good one. Harrison Ford. Yeah, yeah. I think it was the year after this <laughs> that they made um, Kim Basinger. Help me. Basic, Basic instincts. instincts. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So this was right in the heyday of all Sharon of those Stone. thrillers. Yeah, Kim Sharon Basinger Stone. Is which believe us, Sharon L- Stone. L.A. Company. I, I do believe you. Okay, which erotic thriller am I thinking of with Kim Basinger? Uh, I don't. Malice. Know. Look, we'll we'll ask Google. It'll be. Oh, funny. Wayne's World too. Oh, yeah. she was she was oh, girlfriend. Correct. Yeah. You're right. Okay. So, but yeah, these thrillers that were going on in the 90s and I think that one of the things that uh Silence of the Lambs does incredibly well is focus on the thriller aspect rather than any of the, you know, the erotic aspect, which obviously it doesn't even touch on at all, or the horror aspect. There are these sort of I mean, I think there's a lot of horror in Silence of the Lambs. I feel like it's for a thriller. There, I feel sure. like there are like really intense moments of it. Yeah. There's not a lot, but they're very powerful. Right. I, I feel like the thing that stayed with me about that film when I first saw it was just yeah these like sharp moments of just what they just showed me that they just did that. Oh mm. my god! And that's what kind of like gets burned into your brain the first time. And so you kind of that's one thing that seeing it as a younger person did almost bypass the masterpiece qualities Mm. of it because i was like wow i was very disturbed by this particular moment or this particular scene Mm -hmm. and i kind of forgot how much of a masterpiece the rest of it is and so it was really fun to revisit it as well it doesn't depend in any way on jump scares right the most horrifying moments in it are not moments where a thing jumps out of somewhere and i I think the only moment that's a little bit like that is when you see sort of the head that's in that jar Mm, where she like pulls it down but you do know there's something bad in there already right it's not really so it's not really trying to come out of the corner and like surprise you and i feel like some of the makeup kind of has aged a little bit like i'm not that freaked about it's like oh well i don't think i'm supposed to be able to see it this clearly on 4k 4k yeah yeah You know, I mean, you know, Buffalo's Bill's makeup is not supposed to be great, right? <laughs> <laughs> I expect better. Which, by the way, I have a friend who has a friend who was babysat by Ted Levine. No. Oh, yep. No. Why? And how crazy is it that, like, that's just an actor, but, like, the fact that he played this character where, all, like, everyone just had the same reaction. Like, right. you know, like, he's going to show Horror. up and be like, it brushes its teeth by 9 a.m. or it gets the hose again. Like, no, like, that's not... <laughs> 
it's so interesting because obviously he <laughs> he did an amazing job in this part. He had a really hard time finding work after this, mm-hmm. though, because right. even though he's fantastic in this role, it's an incredibly challenging role. And some of the some of the most like creepy things about it were things that he invented himself for mm. the role. Even so, people were so upset by it that they then like kind of didn't want to cast him. It's it's this, you know, sort of stigma now that's now associated with it. It is weird that like as an actor you can be too good <laughs> and just <laughs> right. be like, right. "Oh wow, you were so good at that that I will never think of you as anything right. but that ever again." Right. Well, just thinking about Buffalo Bill's character for a minute, do we want to touch on like the sure. controversy? Go ahead. I mean, I was Absolutely. when I first saw it, I I didn't put the dots together that there was any kind of like anti-gay, anti-trans mm-hmm. thing going on because it just so clearly, and they didn't even say in they the do. movie he's not a real transsexual. They were saying transsexual back then. Mm-hmm. He's not a real transsexual. He's it's something else. It's something right. he just hates himself so much he wants to become anything else besides what he is. Mm-hmm. Um. But it was interesting because I remember hearing about that controversy after watching it, and and I, and I think if you hadn't really like watched the movie closely and just kind of heard about it, mm-hmm. it would be very you know potentially damaging because it's like you know yeah. there's almost no trans characters in movies, and then the one we get like in the nineties <laughs> yeah. is right. like the worst, horrifying creepiest, most horrifying that. person ever. Yeah, um, yeah. and I, I feel like people said he almost made Philadelphia as like. A makeup with mm-hmm. like the gay community. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but it's interesting because it's like it's that question of I think there's been another some other movies like that. Like there's that movie Orphan a few years ago. No, sorry. Do you, you, you see it? it? It was like whatever. It was a kind of a B movie. It was fun. But if you if you didn't see it, you might think it's like saying that Russian kids are all creepy and you shouldn't adopt. And adoption is like kind of dangerous because you might get a, like a screwed up kid. But like the actual twist in the movie is like. Do you want me to should I spoil it here? Spoilers, everybody. I mean, Go yeah. ahead, Alex. If you it's really orphan, want to see orphan and haven't yet, pause now. <laughs> the twist is that it's not actually a child. It's like somebody with like a genetic thing that oh. makes them like look like a child. It's like actually like an older woman, and she's like, you know, using the adoption system to like kill people. <laughs> Michael's face Creepy. is like it's like a really <laughs> weird movie. Yeah, but so if you saw the movie, you'd know like it's not actually about an actual child from mm-hmm. Russia being something you shouldn't adopt. It's actually about this twist right so i feel like there's controversies that happen around movies sometimes where you haven't actually seen the movie you just know a thing Mm -hmm. happens in it or it's about this subject matter and then there's like a protest around that but it's like maybe you should watch it first yeah exactly yeah jonathan demi was very clear and so was ted talley about this at the time even that exactly what you were saying buffalo bill is not gay he's not trans he just hates himself Ultimately. And and he was also and and Jonathan Demi, you know, obviously was a masterful director and has done so much for like was an activist as well, did so much for all kinds of causes and then became known as sort of an issues director because of this, because of Philadelphia and a number of other films and things that he worked on. But he absolutely wanted to emphasize more or like dive more into the Buffalo Bill character and paint a more full and fair picture of this individual who was it is mentioned deep you know systematically abused as a child in that cycle abuse kind of cycle of abuse kind of way that we now understand about those that are criminals and people who harm others and stuff like that he wanted to get into more of that because he wanted to treat that character more fairly and it just ended up not being a thing that the movie could do because it was so focused on Clarice and her story which is kind of a shame and and I do understand that ba- why that backlash happened at the mm-hmm. time I mean 
there was also controversy around Jodie Foster because there were rumors about her sexuality, which now we all know that she's gay and she's like very out about it now. But at the time, that was like, ooh, Jodie Foster, is she gay? Is she dating a woman? Who knows? And people were, it was 1991. <laughs> no one no one was, had the right language to really have a conversation about that that wasn't like universally scared or condemning. Was Was the controversy about her being gay and being in this movie or just her being gay potentially at all? That, that was the controversy. It was just, she might be gay. I think it was about sort of about the sexuality of the character like are they asking her to play straight and she's gay is she gay already it's unclear i don't think it's like she's she's playing a human being who is trying to catch a a serial killer it sounds like it was i mean yeah early 90s that's a very interesting time in the gay community it's like the aids crisis is still going on it's like a very touchy time so i think if you're going to do a movie that does touch on those issues it's probably going to touch a nerve exactly and in Philadelphia, you know, you could, I guess you could see it as a response to some of that. But at the same time, Jonathan Demi was absolutely friends with a lawyer who was HIV positive and was dealing with th- those issues in the early 90s. And so he has very publicly said, like, no, it was about my friend. I, I wanted to work on Philadelphia because it mm. was a friend of mine that was experiencing something similar to this. And so, you know, we obviously are reading this with an incredible amount of hindsight. But I mean... I don't think I don't think the movie has aged in such a way that it's no, you know, not watchable anymore. Like some like some of our older movies are where right. now the the progress that we as a society have made overshadows right. anything the movie was or is. I don't think that has happened to Silence of the Lambs at all. Right. And I was I was yeah. actually because I hadn't seen it since I was young enough to not get the controversy mm-hmm. watching it again I was kind of bracing myself for like, "Oh shoot, am I going to feel awkward about some of this?" But mm-hmm. I was like, "No, they actually kind of directly address it you know Jodie Foster says there's no connection between being transsexual and having violent yeah, actions she and, does. so they, they do address it directly in the text of the movie so I was like okay this is actually I, I don't I'm not feeling uncomfortable about this this feels mm-hmm. like it's it has yeah it's aged okay yeah absolutely yeah, uh, yeah there, there's a lot of interesting stuff that uh, had to be changed from the book and the, because the book focuses on these characters, it goes right. a lot into Buffalo Bill and what his childhood was like and why he is the way he is and et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of obsessed with his mother and like that's kind of why he is trying on these personalities it's very and everything. Bates. Right. And mm-hmm. then you have Jack Crawford, his wife is uh, is dying and he's taking care of her, all this stuff, some of which was in the script and then didn't end up making the movie. Um but the interesting thing is there, there's just there was a lot of red tape, like yeah. the first scene between Clarice and Hannibal when he says, show me your credentials in the book. It's like she's like, I already showed my credentials at the door. And he's like, yeah, but I want to see him. And she's like, Barney, can you come over here? And Barney's like, OK, I'll, I'll give you the credentials, but no funny business. It's like, <laughs> yeah. just, you know, and it's a book. It's not apples to apples. But still, it's like yeah. it's like a page of red tape just before they can start having a conversation. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to the script, obviously, he cut a bunch of that out. But then a lot of it is still there. There's there's a great scene that's actually was shot and it's on the deleted scenes between Crawford goes to uh, Johns Hopkins to get information. And it's it's a it's a cool scene because he kind of is like threatening the guy yeah. and whatever. And then like finally the guy gives in and gives the information. In the movie, Crawford says, oh, Johns Hopkins came through. And it's like, yeah, that's really all the information <laughs> you, need. you don't need. It's a good scene, but it's not a scene that really furthers the plot that we're talking about. Um, and it got to the point where Ted Talley was actually 
concerned that they were cutting so much out. He said, you know, well, I think the audience is going to be confused. And Jonathan Demi said, well, it's better to confuse them for five minutes than to bore them for five seconds. Yes. Mm. It does like that, you know, talking about respecting the audience and, yeah. you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I like that. Even the scene that we talk about in, in the video, the quid pro quo, quid pro, I'm not going to be able to say it. Squid. You can do it. I believe in you. <laughs> Just think of Jody. Quid pro quo. Yeah. yeah. Did it. Great. Even that scene changed from the script. And that was mm-hmm. at one during the dark night of the soul writing it. That was one of the like <laughs> speed bumps I hit that was like, well, it's different in the movie than in the script. And is it fair to talk about it? In the movie, blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to address it, but we didn't. But now mm. I can. Where, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Michael still hasn't quite recovered, I think, from <laughs> making also, this video. I was really sick when I was working on yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is interesting in the script version of the scene, I, I, it does take a lot longer to get started and kind of get to like the meat of the scene and it sort of it begins um with less of a clear inciting incident where it's yeah. just kind of assumed you know that clarice has come and kind of let him know that there's an offer so he's like kind of giving information at the beginning mm-hmm. but like then later is like okay but no i want to hear your actual offer and then she gives him the offer and then he's like okay well quit a pro grow we're gonna do this mm-hmm. it's still inside right um, <laughs> no you got it that time no. so it was interesting yeah just comparing those two and and to see in the editing of the final version, how they changed the structure to really um, emphasize and amplify the sort of more traditional structure. So it does begin with like a very clear inciting incident. And then everything that happens is much more motivated, I feel like, in, in the final version than it was in the original script. Right. Editing is the final draft. That's right. I can't tell which I find more disturbing about Hannibal Lecter. All the terrible murders that he committed or that weird play on words he does with turns. Uh, it's so insane she, she's like turns really and that's the, yeah, yeah. He's, he's it, like hey you remember remember a second ago when you said turns like the bird like with an e um <laughs> so like turns. if you like if if you and i want to do this thing like it'll be turn like we'll take turn like with a you get it because <laughs> you remember what you remember what you it said, is one the of bird? the weirdest lines in the movie like i did kind of a double segment editing it like yeah he just did that okay <laughs> i looked it up in the book and it's just like she says turns roost there and he says turns like with the E and then he said and then he kind of launches into well look I have to get something out of this too. so you can see like in his mind he's thinking that little play on words but he doesn't come out and say it because I don't know it doesn't feel like a very Hannibal Lecter it thing does feel do. a little goofy <laughs> yeah that's like oh you just used a pun to transition to, <laughs> right yeah <laughs> yeah not so much but I feel like that's also where you know give it to Anthony Hopkins and it will oh, work. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And it'll I be also fine. like, I didn't really question it the first time I saw the movie. I just, upon reading the script and seeing yeah. the words, I was like, whoa. What? Yeah, same. But yeah, if Anthony Hopkins is saying it, you're like, okay. Yeah. So backing up a little bit, which I'm sure you've done a ton of reading about this also, Brian. So originally Gene Hackman was the person that was on board yeah. to yeah. direct this movie. And possibly play Hannibal. And possibly play Hannibal, which we can all just like breathe a sigh of relief that <laughs> yeah, it didn't go down that way. No offense to Gene Hackman. He's amazing. So he was originally, he really was going to direct the movie and he was probably either going to play Hannibal or Crawford, which I actually think he would have been a pretty good Crawford. Sure. Yeah. Um, and he ended up not doing that. But then when he left the project, so Ted Talley was already writing. Ted Talley had met with Gene Hackman. He'd actually like gone to Gene Hackman's ranch in Arizona mm-hmm. and spent like days there trying to sell himself as the screenwriter for this movie and finally got the gig, went away and was writing it. And then months later in the middle of the night gets a phone call and is like, yeah, Gene bounced. And so Ted Talley was like, what the heck? Am I still on this project? What's happening with it? I don't understand. And they're like, just and keep writing. His agent was like, just keep writing. We'll sort it out. 
And then when Jonathan Demi came on board, he and he took Ted out to lunch and he basically was like, listen, I trust you completely. I love this story. I've seen some of what you've done done already. I absolutely you are the only person who's going to work on this. You're going to finish it. We're going to shoot what you write. That's that, which honestly is an amazing dream for a screenwriter. Pretty crazy. Yeah. It's so nuts. And that is pretty much exactly what happened. And so, you know, Jonathan Demi, they they say that like 85% of what is in the movie was in Ted Talley's first draft, pretty much. Well, I remember reading that it was pretty rushed at that point. Like Jonathan Demi came Mm -hmm. out and suddenly was like, go, go, go. Right. And so Ted Talley was saying in an interview like this. Yeah, we didn't really have that much time to like second guess it or do a bunch of different drafts. It was just like, all right, let's go. Still, Which what is am- pretty impressive. Yeah. What amazing faith from the director, though, that just what is on the page is, is capturing what needs to be done with the story. And it really was Ted Talley that singled out Clarice as being the main character out of the book. Because yeah. the book is more omniscient, where it's like you're jumping around, you're seeing Buffalo Bill, you're seeing all this different stuff. And then Clarice is among the many characters that are a part of this thing. And it was Ted Talley that was like, no, this is this is Clarice. Like, that's what we need. And actually, Jodie Foster zeroed in on that as well from the minute that she read the book when she read the book she was like i have to play clarice clarice is the main character it's clarice's story and so she was lobbying for the part she actually tried to buy the rights to the book herself mm-hmm. and, and, and then, weren't, wasn't jonathan demi pretty skeptical of her like he yeah he didn't believe that she could do it or she wasn't right for it yeah there's well, a he whole wanted process. to work with michelle pfeiffer yes because he had right. just finished working with her and he was exit michael's face is like mm-hmm. oh no mm-hmm. <laughs> Also, I mean, I love Michelle Pfeiffer. (laughs) Sure. Also, Jonathan Demme had just been doing like screwball comedies and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was like, it was like, we're going to screwball comedy. And he just worked Michelle Pfeiffer. And and everyone's like, what? This is like not that kind of movie. And then he didn't make that kind of movie. Yeah. So Jodie Foster was lobbying hard for the part. She actually called Ted Talley. She found his number. She'd never met him before. She heard he was working on it, found his number, called him up and was like, are you going to write a part for me? And he was like, I think I am right now. And so then it actually ended up being a trade. Again, according this is all according to what I've read. I was not there. I was five. <laughs> <laughs> but it ended up being a trade, essentially. The studio wanted Hopkins, I think it was. or De- Demi wanted Hopkins. Right, because Demi had seen and him. And Tally in- wanted Foster. And they were like, all right, you can get what you want if I get what I want. And they just made that piece with it. It worked Thank out. And the goodness. rest was history. It worked out. Yes. Yeah. My God. So incredible. And Demi had seen Hopkins in The Elephant Man, mm-hmm. um, That's where, right. where he plays yeah. this kind of quiet, compassionate doctor. And Hopkins was like, really? That's what made you think of this part? And and to Hopkins' credit, he was like, yeah, I, I wanted to do everything against what you're expecting when you when you first meet him. And that's sort of where the, the stillness of, of Lecter comes comes in. And can we just talk about the Demi, like, direct into camera yeah. thing? Because it was some movies, I think in Philadelphia, there were some moments when I first saw it. Once again, I should rewatch it as an adult adult Mm -hmm. but when i saw that also as a teenager it did take me out of the movie sometimes where it just felt almost too forced where there's like a tracking shot with somebody just staring into the camera it's Mm. like that's too much but in this movie talk about a like a form meeting yes function or whatever term that should be there Mm -hmm. basically like the content calling for that direct-to-camera and just cutting to anthony hopkins looking with those eyes cutting to jodie foster and her vulnerability like it's so amazing. I mean, I'm sure we were all too young for it, but I can't imagine seeing this on the big screen. Mm. Can you imagine seeing yeah. Anthony Watching Hopkins' right. eyes staring right at you 50 feet across? It's just, oh, what 
what a brave choice. Mm. I mean, and obviously this movie is full of incredibly inspired and brave choices from Jonathan Demme. One of the things I love most is that Jodie Foster is this incredibly petite woman mm-hmm. and he doesn't bother to stand her on an apple box. Oh no. Or like, <laughs> Lots of shots of her surrounded by like hulking dudes exactly. who are all wearing the same uniform and she's wearing like something different. And yeah. Yeah. It's, it really emphasizes her otherness mm-hmm. and her personal stakes. I was thinking about this. Um, I think that in a lot of action thriller movies, the hero isn't allowed to show fear. So if you imagine like a a big, some of our big like action movies, I was thinking about Die Hard, your favorite movie, Michael. Uh, And I was just thinking about John McClane sort of as like an archetypal action hero and how he's never really scared. Like he's angry, he's annoyed, he's in pain. He's possibly anxious or worried, but that's sort of gut level. I am scared for my life. I'm just, I'm trembling in fear. We don't really ever see that from our archetypal action heroes, or we rarely see that from our archetypal action heroes. And one thing I love about Jonathan Demme's direction here and Foster's performance is that Clarice is terrified. Well, especially the finale. Oh my god! I love her performance in the finale. Yeah. Yes, like when she's when she's like yelling to Catherine Martin that it's like right. help us on the way. It's right. like it's so not true, and you can so yes. tell she doesn't believe. It's just amazing. Yeah. yeah. When there's so much nuance, and also where like yeah. yeah, there's moments where she's like it'll be it'll be okay. Like I'm here to help. Everything's fine. And then moments later, it's like shut up. <laughs> like I'm trying to like be quiet. Yeah. She, like I just love that that. That exchange feels so real. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it feel even more stressful. Well, that's that's part of what like elevates this movie. You know, like yes. in a normal crime thriller genre movie, that exchange would not have been that real. Mm-hmm. But it was so right. real. And yeah. I just love it. Yeah. Well, and the fact that she is just wrestling her way through her fear at every moment. And you can see that on her face. She's there alone. She doesn't have any backup. There is absolutely no one there to save the day except for her. And not just in the climax. She's so alone from the very first moment the that whole we movie. meet her. I mean, yeah. The first She's scene so with Lecter is a pretty horrific experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For her. Yeah, One of, of the things that stuck in my mind <laughs> when I first saw it. Utter the, horror. The yes. end of that scene. The worst. When Migs does his thing. Yeah. That's what every, every frame of painting calls it yeah. like, that's, like, that's a good that's a good and i feel like also if if people haven't seen the every frame of painting video about silence mm-hmm. of the lambs yeah. this is sort of conceived or, or somewhat intended to be a, a companion piece to that where they they go through the first scene between Lecter and clarice and talk about the dynamics of the scene but also editing and shot composition yeah mm-hmm. exactly like you were saying alex how it's like what moments are they looking directly into camera? What moments mm-hmm. do they cut away? And like, mm-hmm. how does that mm-hmm. change the power so dynamics intentional. and stuff? It's yeah. So everything's done with such intention, which I always appreciate. Yeah. Barry Jenkins did the t- straight to camera with both Moonlight and uh, Beale Street. Yeah. And, and I think Demi's didn't Demi say like he is, I officially anoint him as the first person to have done this in oh. my style since me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think of, uh, there was an IndieWire article where Jonathan Demi was like, I officially like approve of Barry Jenkins' directed camera style. Wow, which, like, it's the first one I've seen since myself that I think is like doing <laughs> what I did. Yeah, yeah, he, and he was talking about it the Q and I, a Q and A I went to. I don't know what the I is. <laughs> Question and information. Um, and uh, and he was saying that it's really effective from a directorial standpoint because the audience is having the 
act, actors speak directly to them and mm. it really arrests you and but he said that the actor the the actress who i think this was her first movie right, uh, yeah. in beale street she was saying do you know how hard it is to give your energy to nothing <laughs> like, yeah. like instead of being able to do a scene with somebody i have to do this entire scene to, to this camera and it's piece really of glass. Yeah. so all those yeah. amazing scenes uh-huh. <laughs> right. those, they're looking at a giant lens in their face exactly yeah. Yeah. well that's what yeah that's what struck me also is that it's it's not just that it's two camera but it it does feel like they're performing the scene with, with the camera with you and right. and i feel like that yeah takes a that's hard uh, on, on <laughs> yeah. that note there was in the script there's a flashback when clarice gives her lambs monologue mm-hmm. oh right to cut yeah. back to like the young actress and she is doing the lambs thing and <laughs> the lambs thing the, yeah <laughs> right she's you doing like see her like running right. and, 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 and uh, it's a flashback when they shot when they shot the scene <laughs> between Lecter and uh and clarice uh jonathan demi showed Ted, he called Ted Talley and said, you have to come look at these dailies. Mm-hmm. So Ted Talley comes and he and he shows him the performance. And Ted Talley's like, her performance is incredible. And he says, yeah, if I put flashback over this, I'm going to get kicked out of the DGA. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. Well, that, that was one of the moments reading the script that I was I was horrified when that happened. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God, I can't imagine cutting away, right. seeing like how much less effective it would be. Because I feel like her performance is just so amazing. And just when you see her like, even just like sometimes she's looking this way when she's thinking one thing, but like then her eyes go this way and she's you feel like she's really reliving these moments. Right. Yeah. It's like Jodie Foster, it's like yeah. stop. You're yeah. too good. <laughs> well, and sort of returning to one of the things that I, I can't stop thinking about in terms of this movie, it's the power of showing somebody who is genuinely scared and yet has the internal resolve to keep going through that. Right. Um, you know, I uh, I work with kids a lot. I volunteer, and I love the book Coraline by Neil Gaiman. Um, and there's moments in – and Coraline is in some ways a character that reminds me of Clarice Starling. Uh, but she she's really by herself in a lot of that book, and it's horrifying. And she has to face these, like, series of tests and challenges, and she is alone – and so she, there's a moment where she comes through this absolutely scary. That book is, by the way, one of the scariest children's books mm. I could ever imagine because it's written at about a fourth grade reading level, uh, and it's written. The prose itself is really quite simplistic, and like the lexicon and and the the reading level is very um, accessible to younger kids. But even with very spare prose. Gaiman is able to convey so much like terror. Well, I love I love the movie for that reason too because yeah. it's like one of my favorite quote unquote kids movies because yeah. it's legitimately disturbing. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. but there's a moment that Coraline comes through this absolutely horrifying situation, and she has a brief moment where she's able to stop and rest, and then she has to go into another fi- terrifying situation, which actually is in a basement. And she she has to go down into a cellar. She knows that whatever is going to be down there is going to be terrifying and somehow worse than what she's just come through. She knows that. And so she gives herself a hug and she tells herself that she is brave, even though she doesn't feel brave. She tells herself that she is brave and she goes down into the basement. And I just couldn't get over that image of somebody who is genuinely scared. And it conveys that it's so much more earned, the climax of this movie, that Clarice, Clarice's triumph has so much of so much greater power because we know how scared she was to do this, and yet she had no other choice but to do this. It is the entire 
it's the entire journey for her is to master that fear so she can save somebody else. It's incredible. Yeah. And I feel like it also, in the end, it feels like she just got really lucky. Like, she could have died multiple times. Like, you see from his perspective, like, he's there, like, toying with her almost. Touching her hair. Yeah. And I feel like it's, yeah, it's the emotionality behind it that I feel like kind of makes up for it. Not makes up for it, but, like, you know, it's almost like a deus ex machina kind of feeling of an ending Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, he didn't have to cock the like. He could have killed her if he wanted to, but like you're still just so relieved and happy that she was able to, you know, achieve this thing that it kind of the the mechanics of how it all plays mm-hmm. out. I feel like it's overridden by just the emotional relief of like that could have gone really bad. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it didn't, though, because of how it, you know, the result right. that happened. And Brooke Smith, the character, the actress who plays Catherine Martin, that's her name, right? Yeah, Brooke, Smith? Brooke something. Yeah. It was one of her very first roles ever. And Jonathan Demi cast her on purpose as someone who didn't have a ton of experience because he was trying to terrify her. Which, again, that character, I, I don't know how she's written in the book, but that character, again, is so relatable because she does end up becoming victimized and could very easily lose her life and doesn't stop fighting. Like the fact that she is so scrappy and she's willing to like get the dog, get this dog. <laughs> and I she's love that. constantly screaming profanity at Buffalo Bill. It's amazing. But it is also just like, imagine if that character were passive. Imagine if that character yeah, sure. were resolved right. to die. There would be no tension. There would be no che- rooting for her. There'd be no hope there. So much is lost by not having this struggle. Or would be lost by not having the struggle. It's It makes the climax of that movie so effective. And Jonathan Demi was worried about that. He was like, oh, all of this and we're just going to like go in a basement? Like, it's not going to be of an explosion or a shootout or whatever? Right. It's it not is, a big Hollywood thing. Another thing I remember from seeing it the first time was it did feel kind of like a sudden ending. Like, there's mm. the night vision and then she shoots him and it's over. And it's like, oh, that was that's it. Okay, yeah. that, that was it. So I, I can see why he was nervous about that. But watching it again once, you know, once I, this is... A lot of this has been just me reflecting on my teenage brain and my 30-something brain. But 30-something brain it appreciates the yeah the emotional character arc so much that, like you were saying, Michael, it really doesn't matter that it's not a big flashbang. Hannibal Lecter shows up mm-hmm. also and like everything ties together <laughs> perfectly. It, you know, it wasn't about that. It was about mm-hmm. Jodie Foster and her character's journey. And that is what feels so satisfying with her having to do the hardest, scariest thing ever at the end. Yeah, Absolutely. it's almost more like that she's... That she goes in to the basement. Yes, it's like that. the the important. That's part. the point. And then like whatever happens after that, she happens kind of to survive. Incidental. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I thought about that moment so much, where it was like, did she have to? Did she have to go down there? And the obvious answer is yes, because like you can you can hope or assume maybe even that he's going to take an opportunity to make a run for it. Like maybe he'll go out a basement window and try to get away. But he's probably going to kill Catherine Martin before he does. And so there's absolutely no way for her arc for her not to go into that basement because she's there to save the lambs. And so she has to save Catherine Martin. She can hear her screaming like, you know, I don't think from the top of the stairs, but very quickly after she gets down there. So, yes, she absolutely does. No matter like she can't wait for backup. She can't just leave and call like the phone is probably there right in the kitchen. She probably could call Crawford right there or the local cops or whatever. 
But that isn't an option because if the, if it goes that way, Catherine Martin dies and then she doesn't save the lambs. And that's so well set up and that's so well earned that when she makes the incredibly, insanely difficult decision that I'm sure I would never have the courage to personally do to go into that basement, we buy right. it. Yeah. It is always stressful when it, I feel like anytime I feel like I want to have like a I want to talk to like a police strategist yeah. or something to know like what is the protocol because I feel like if you're chasing someone and you're entering a maze where they know everything <laughs> and you know nothing how could you possibly expect that to go well right mm. like is that just a movie thing or is there actual some logic to it I know I'm sure that there is and I'm sure it's like again if if there isn't an innocent life on the line. I'm sure you just like, okay, we're going to set up a perimeter, whatever, try to right. get Right, or at least like way. let somebody else know where you are. Right, of but course. Well, that's and not the point of the story. I do want to say one quick thing. The intercutting between... Oh, the fake out. Yeah. yeah. It's a good fake out. out. Yeah. It's obviously one of the most iconic things about this movie. And I was like, is this? could this possibly be written into the script in quite the same way? And the truth is, yeah. Ted Talley wrote it just like that, where the beats are exactly lined up with like the and then the buzzer goes off Mm -hmm. downstairs and then you can see the flower delivery man, like FBI guy ringing the doorbell. Mm -hmm. And it is an incredibly well cut, amazingly suspenseful fake out that works super well and was on the page. Mm -hmm. One encouraging lesson for me, which I'm sure we're about to get into lessons, but one encouraging lesson for me was just that. Sometimes it write exactly the movie that you see, um, and sometimes like you'll get lucky, and Jonathan Demi will make your movie and, <laughs> right. and shoot it just like you wrote it, pretty much. Aside from some flashbacks you didn't need anyway. Mm-hmm. Maybe, but like maybe don't count on that. No, no, you did. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why don't we go ahead and go around and talk about, yeah, what are the lessons that we will be taking away from The Silence of the Lambs? Brian, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, It sounds silly, but genuinely just I learned a lot about what good scenes have. Uh, One of the quotes that we originally wanted to um, put in in the video was by Linda Seeger from her book, uh, Making a Good Script Great where she talks about a script should advance the story and build character, which are two things we talk about, and also build an image and explore a theme. And she basically, what I like about that quote was she says, a a great scene does all of these, a good scene does some of them. And I think that's nice because it's sort of, it's a nice tentpole or or a nice uh, something to shoot for, but it also kind of leaves you a little to say like, look, not every scene has to be everything. Not every scene has to have a three act structure. Not every scene has to do this. But if you, if you want to have your great scene in your movie, like maybe focus on that doing as much as possible. And then your other scenes can sort of pick and choose which things uh, you want from there. Um, and, and it's also interesting how you realize that you were doing some of this stuff all along mm-hmm. be like, Oh, I didn't realize that I, I had put obstacle in my scenes, I you know, or like something you didn't know you were supposed to do in quotes, but that you had done anyway, because you had seen things and you know what a good scene is. Uh, in Aaron Sorkin's masterclass, he talks about 
the movie Fargo. And he's talking about scenes that drive the story and things. And he says, there's one scene in Fargo where Francis McDormand uh, meets up with this old like high school friend and he's kind of in love with her. Yeah. Oh, you're such a super lady. You know, that mm-hmm. whole scene. It's like, <laughs> it has nothing to do with anything, but it's the Coen brothers and it's an amazing scene. <laughs> and it was just one of those funny things of like, yeah, sometimes you can completely break, break the rules and say, let's put this scene in this movie that has nothing to do with anything. But then obviously like looking at, the shoulds and the you know what what you should be doing. I could debate about that. Yeah. I, lo- I love char- that scene. It's a character I moment. A I mean, yeah. For sure. Her. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like you know the rules are not so much rules as I, I feel like that they are tools to like help bring things to consciousness. Mm. You can be deliberate about what you're doing. Yeah, and not blindly just follow what Mickey says. Right. Yeah. Ideally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alex, I kind of got into my premeditated takeaway earlier just talking about how I think the lesson I took away was wow you can be kind of given what could be a very procedural mm-hmm. crime thriller movie you could do it and execute in a very kind of just standard way and it'd probably be fine and entertaining but just the fact that you can take material like this that you wouldn't think would be the five big Oscar winner Mm-hmm. Uh, and just make so many good choices at every step of the screenwriting, of the cinematography, the actors you cast, the way it's cut. Everything about it is is done so masterfully, and mm. he bothered to do that in what could have been a more pulpy, absolutely thriller kind of material. So it just it was a good lesson for me of like, wow, n- never discount you know the genre you're working in. Mm-hmm. You can you can make it the Oscar version of that genre, and like, why not? You know, yeah. a movie like that re- in more recent years uh, that I had that feeling from was Prisoners, the okay. De- Denis Villeneuve. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was definitely a less perfect movie than Sounds of the Lambs in a lot of ways. But just, you know, the Roger Deakin cinematography and the music by uh, Johan Johansson and like mm-hmm. just it had those extra elements of like, oh, I went to this movie just thinking it was going to be a just a typical like, oh, kids are kidnapped, you know, kind yeah, of yeah. thriller movie. And it was so much more than that. And it was just, what a wonderful surprise to go to a theater not expecting that and to, and to get it. I want that to happen more. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Trisha? I have a couple really fast things I'm going to try to go through quickly, which I, I didn't get to earlier. Um, Patricia Highsmith, who is one of my favorite uh, writers of all time. She's a novelist, uh, but she wrote Strangers on a Train, upon which the Hitchcock movie is based. And she also wrote The Talented Mr. Ripley. And she's an amazing suspense fiction writer. She has a book called Plotting and Writing Suspense Fiction. She talks about the like the essence of a psychological thriller is that we are invited into the mind of essentially the villain or we are invited into the mind of the criminal. And one of the challenges she encountered often in her career was how do I make this person relatable, likable? How do I make them a protagonist in any way? And the fact that Hannibal Lecter has so invaded our consciousness, I think, is due to some of the principles she talks about in that book, which is about this uh, embodiment of contrasts, which obviously make a great character anyway, but I think Hannibal Lecter is a really good example of where she's like, okay. And actually Patricia Highsmith says in her book, long before Silence of the Lambs or anything like that, she's like, give him an interest in art, give him an interest in classical music, like get these some redeemable characteristics that we can see, intelligence, compassion for certain amounts of people, uh, or certain kinds of people or animals or children or whatever. Like, And so the fact that 
he has a very Hannibal Lecter has a very clear moral code. So and he is purposefully set up against people who are in some ways worse than he is. Like Chilton is way worse than he is to some extent. We hate Chilton. And then Miggs in the first scene, of course, is a critical <laughs> uh, juxtaposition there to set Hannibal Lecter off as being better or more ethical than some of these other characters. He has a a code, at least. Yeah, Exactly. He has his own moral code. And so I think what makes this such a compelling psychological thriller is the fact that Hannibal Lecter is imbued with so many of these positive qualities that make us like him and want to trust him. And same thing, obviously, same thing with Clarice. Uh, And then the other thing I really want to quickly just reiterate is the power of giving your hero so many disadvantages from the very beginning of the story. Um, she is a woman in a man's field. She's not even just a woman in a man's field. She's a student and a trainee in a man's field. Mm -hmm. And she has essentially no tools whatsoever other than herself to overcome this totally insurmountable challenge. And it is not easy for her. Every tiny step of it is hard for her, which you talk about in the video. Every single piece of information that she reveals is painful and and challenging. And so every single little choice that she makes demonstrates her fortitude and her perseverance and her determination to fulfill this thing. It makes her, all of the disadvantages stacked against her, make this story what it is. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. If she had even one advantage, the scene where she's lying under the... um, under the garage door at the storage oh unit. <laughs> so nerve wracking. It's yeah. so stressful. She's about to go under there and she's realizing the position she's putting herself in. But she at the same time doesn't want to worry the guy that is with her, like the <laughs> storage unit owner or whatever. Right. I love the way she plays that. The, mm. I love it. It's amazing. She's like, look, if this door should fall down <laughs> or, any, or anything else. It, it, it's just such a, and actually the ha ha is in the script. Yeah. That little chuckle in the middle of that line is in the script. Nice. I mean, it's so brilliant, Ted Tally, but just that sense of she realizes fully how unequipped and disadvantaged she is. She could die in there and all she has to the only thing she has is a business card to give this guy. It's she has absolutely no no weapons really against the level of evil that she is facing. And that makes this story so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, the. I kept, you know, and rewatching all of the scenes over and over again. Uh, something Hannibal says in the fourth scene between them, when Clarice is like, "Help me catch this person!" Like, how do I find it? And he's like, "Everything you need is in here." Uh, and he has a line where he says, uh, "You know, simplicity. Read Marcus Aurelius of each particular thing. Ask what is it in and of itself? What is its nature? Et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera." And I feel like that resonated with me because I think that's something that I have kind of, uh, it's like a mentality that I've developed for myself when working on these videos and trying to explain things or doing second passes of my writing and trying to figure out what's working and what isn't is like, I kind of stop and rather than view each thing in context, really try to, you know, if I'm looking at a script that I've written, translate each thing into its most basic element. Like what is the pure information that this sentence is communicating. And I kind of just do that line by line. And that helps kind of give me a, a better sense of what is working and what isn't working. And and uh, yeah, I, I think part of it is I'm, you know, I know 
some computer programming. And so part of it is mm-hmm. like, I, I tend to think of things in computer robot terms sometimes. And that helps uh-huh. me. Uh-huh. Uh, because like if you're programming, like computers are really, really dumb. And so if you're going to tell a computer how to do anything, you have to literally tell it mm-hmm. every step it possible. Like turn left and then move forward two feet. And then like, you know, if you're moving a robot, you have to mm-hmm. tell it every single thing. And so you have to be able to boil down concepts into their just most basic, like what is actually happening here. Yeah. Um, and so just hearing him say that, I was like, oh, Hannibal. Yeah. <laughs> like, I resonate with that. Like, so, that's good advice. so your lesson is actually from Hannibal. Yeah. Listen nice. to Hannibal when he says <laughs> yeah. simplicity. So I think that that uh, can help you Perfect. kind of find problems in your writing or, or realize what's actually on the page behind all of the, you know, the window dressing that you've put up around it. Well, that's that's one thing that, you know, when we've gone back and forth with our writing, Michael, and you, you've kind of helped me do a breakdown of a script that I'm working on that is really helpful. I mean, I, I kind of resist thinking in robot terms sometimes because I'm romantic and I'm like, no, it's not art if it's robotic. Yeah. But it is so helpful to have that x-ray vision of like, this scene doesn't feel right. Why doesn't it feel right? And when you when you do decode it into like here's what this is actually doing beat by beat then you can see oh it's like the same beat three times and that's why it feels long and boring we only need one we just need one of these and then we get it mm-hmm. and move on yeah so the robot thing i get it <laughs> i appreciate it but, and i think that yeah, is very helpful uh when you, you don't know why something's not working to to turn it into those simple building blocks you see why you're missing a block you have too many of this block it makes it very clear yeah yeah. I'm very glad that robots aren't that smart yet. Yeah. They're on their way. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Um, all right, cool. Really quick, uh, what's everyone watching this week? Trisha? Yeah, so last night I watched this amazing and very excellent documentary called Shirkers on Netflix. Oh, I've heard about this. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Uh so it's by this filmmaker. Her name is Sandy Tan. And she, it the movie is her looking back at a film that she made, like a narrative film that she made when she was a teenager in 1992 in Singapore. So she and her friends, teenagers, they were in film school. They were in a film class with this like American film professor. And they ended up all making a movie together under the direction of this film professor. And then I don't want to give away too much of what happened. But basically, the film was stolen from them and vanished for 25 years. And so the documentary is about the making of the movie, what happened, sort of the mystery of like, who would steal a a movie? Who would steal a movie from student filmmakers? It's so insane. And it's this incredibly beautiful sort of memoir from her that at the same time is so tragic and poignant and she's looking at it with all the benefit of hindsight the way that we do and just as someone who as a teenager was shooting films with my friends and it it really captures the spirit of what is it that drives us as young people or like pulls us into the movie business and then those experiences that we all have that are end up tragic and horrifying and it's not what we wanted at all and it <laughs> they breaks bra- up they breaks break up our us <laughs> yeah and then we're no longer enthusiastic and it happy is- and energetic oh my gosh it's also just an incredibly well-made documentary it's called shirkers it's on your netflix check it out awesome alex so i've been watching barry finally uh hbo okay. i'm late, late to the party i know on that one i love it i just people have been re- recommending it to me for a while um have you guys seen barry Oh, I, y'all should watch it. It's great. <laughs> because it's, as an Angelino, it's fun. It takes place in LA. Mm, right. It's about, you know, yeah, actors yeah. who are struggling. And it's like, 
it hurts so much, but it's yeah. so true and it's so good. It, it, you know, I think yeah. I did see one episode and it really it was painful to it's watch. It's too real. Yeah. yeah. It's it's if you're in the business and you're especially, you know, an actor or no actors who are trying to make it in LA, it's painfully real. But the humor is so dark and funny and spot on. Um and I just I feel like it nails some very specific tone that is very mm-hmm. hard to nail. Like it's it's got a lot of heart, but it's also just like brutally violent suddenly. And then it's Whoa. also very just honest it does a lot and it does it all well and so i'm just incredibly impressed with barry cool check check it out awesome yeah cool brian uh quick side note before we get into it uh because you were talking trisha about the hannibal lecter uh you know just sort of the mythos of the character Mm -hmm. it occurred to me that i had seen everything hannibal lecter the character had been in except for hannibal rising so i watched okay hannibal rising which uh, my recommendation to all of you is don't watch Hannibal Rising. That's what uh, I've heard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had heard the same, but I was like, you know what? It's literally the only thing I hadn't seen. But, you know, you got Manhunter in 1986 mm-hmm. with uh, Brian Cox as the OG Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Then oh. the movie Hannibal, which is a hot mess, but it's surprising because it's like Steve Zalian and David Mamet wrote it and Ridley Scott directed it. And there's like good actors and it's a terrible movie. And yeah. then Red Dragon, screenplay by Ted Talley, which Brett Ratner managed to not screw up. <laughs> and then, Amazingly. And then the television show, which is like, complicated and sometimes pretentious but also like deals with a lot of stuff from the books that you didn't get into otherwise but i've heard really good things about the tv show it's it's interesting it's just it's challenging and there are times where you're like oh my i don't need to see like five seconds or like you know 30 seconds of wine slow slowly pouring into a glass with like classical music and it looks the color of blood and you know a lot of that but it's entertaining and it does take some of the things out prestige tv (laughs) so anyway i had to throw that in there don't watch hannibal rising watch other stuff um what you should watch (laughs) Is uh, I went to another uh, Kurosawa matinee at the uh, mm. the Vista here in L.A. and I saw Ikiru uh, from. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, I was blown away by it. It's it's hard to tell since it's so fresh in my mind, but it might be like one of my favorite movies of all time. Wow. Yeah, it does some really interesting things. It's the first Kurosawa movie I've seen that was con- took place in a contemporary setting and not yeah. like you know uh, feudal Japan kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and. Uh, yeah, very simply, it's it's a character who knows he's going to die and tries to sort of regain his life. You know, so we've seen it in American Beauty and Breaking Bad and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But it's just, again, to see a movie that did that that long ago and is more complicated and interesting and fascinating. And there's just when you think you sort of get what the main crux of the movie is, it introduces a new idea that makes you think about things. And yeah, love the movie. Ikiru Kurosawa. Go check it out. Really beautiful movie. Michael. Nice. Good pro quo, Michael. <laughs> I watched uh, The Favorite last night, mm. finally, trying to catch up Yay! with the Oscar oh, viewing. Did yeah. you love it? I did. Yeah, I loved it. It's so great. It's, it's so really, good. really great. It's so, so I was great. struck by, like, it's so, it's such a simple, like, classic, like, conceit of just, mm-hmm. like, like I, just, I love, like, you know, just a couple people at the power play and the mm-hmm. who's, you know, who's the favorite and who isn't. Like, you just get so... I just love those stories and you get so invested and it's such a great juxtaposition of the very simple story with very clear, simple objectives, but like against this complicated, vast, majestic backdrop. And yeah, I was... I enjoyed it. Nice. Very, those very those three actors. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's Incredible. you can't you can't go good. wrong. Yeah. I feel like Emma Stone is almost like the new like Meryl Streep. Like like mm. I feel like she's just she's amazing in everything. That's a bold that's a I bold statement. Say, I mean oh, she's I've, been nominated for what four Oscars and she's been in like eleven movies or something. Right. Like I, I feel like she's she's never not been amazing. 
like, you know, not all of her movies are perfect, but that's mm. not her responsibility. Like, I think she's, I've just, I'm always struck by how amazing she is and everyone. And it was funny because. Like, who doesn't like her also? Right. I mean, I mean. And I, I, as I was watching it, I was like, okay, so Olivia Coleman won the Oscar and like, okay, yeah. you know, okay, that's. I mean, I guess she's good. And then there's this moment that happens yeah. kind of in the first 20 minutes or something where there's just this long close up of her. Mm-hmm. Where, like, in that one moment, I went from, like, I guess she's pretty good to, oh my God. Yeah. Is it give this the woman an, uh, Yes, yeah, during yeah, the yeah. dancing scene. Like, <laughs> the, oh, I love oh, the dancing give scene. Give her all the Oscars right now. I, wa- yeah. I watch a lot of British TV, so I've been watching Olivia Coleman for a decade. Yeah. And right. it's like, Broad I Church. love her. Broadchurch. There's so a movie good. called Tyrannosaur, which she is unbelievable oh, yeah. in. Yeah. And so it was like, for me to see her get that recognition was like, yeah. she's going to be queen again in the crown yeah that's mm-hmm. right that's great yeah. so excited about it i feel like those are the best oscars when it's like someone that like really deserves it and has deserved it for forever yeah and well to be clear glenn close also is in that category exactly well, okay. that yeah. sure. glenn close also has deserved she's it been forever. denied it many yeah. times yeah. Yeah. exactly yeah. okay well oscars but <laughs> i didn't see the wife so i was really happy when you know, <laughs> 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 um awesome cool well thank you everyone for listening uh we will see you in the next episode Thanks, guys. Bye. People will say we're in love. (laughs) (laughs) I was like waiting for Brian to do this. Hey, guys. Michael here. First of all, a big thank you from myself and the team to everyone who has subscribed and listened and left all the amazing reviews on iTunes. Make sure to subscribe to Beyond the Screenplay wherever you get your podcasts. It's been really great hearing from you guys on Twitter, so feel free to keep hitting us up there to share any feedback you have. We'd love to hear anything and everything. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. And finally, if you want to help us continue to grow both the channel and the podcast, Head to the Patreon for lessons from the screenplay to become a patron. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.